there and welcome to another episode of Just the Chats, European Movement Ireland's podcast series, where we sit down and chat with a range of people across Ireland, across Europe and beyond and discuss all things EU, Irish related and much, much more. My name is Noelle O'Connell and I'm the CEO of European Movement Ireland. And I'm delighted to be joined today by my co-host and our deputy CEO, Stephen O'Shea, for today's very special podcast. Since 1954, European Movement Ireland has been working to strengthen and develop the connection between Ireland and Europe. And we have a range of fascinating podcast guests available for you to listen back to and webinars to watch on our EM Ireland player that's available on our website, europeanmovement.ie. So please do make sure to check it out. And we have a very special and distinguished guest for today's podcast. Um, I'm delighted that we are joined all the way from beautiful Bruges by the Rector of the College of Europe, Federica Mogherini. Federica has been Rector of the College of Europe since September 2020, and she also co-chairs the United Nations High Level Panel on Internal Displacement. She previously served as the High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy and Vice President of the European Commission from 2014 to 2019. And prior to taking up that role in the EU, she was the Italian Minister for Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation and a member of the Italian Chamber of Deputies. Federica, if I may, it is my great privilege and honour to welcome you to our EM Ireland Just a Chats podcast today. It's a pleasure for me to join you, uh, as you said, from uh, beautiful Bruges uh, uh, to beautiful Ireland. And uh, thank you very much for uh, setting this up. Uh, I'm very excited about this, looking forward to, to our chat. And uh, thank you again for, for doing this. I'm, I'm extremely oh. excited about this. Pleasure. Well, thank you. It, it's great to it's great to see you. I think it's virtually again, Federica. We, of course, had the pleasure of having you address the College of Europe uh, Irish alumni in Bruges and Natalin, where we were joined by yourself and the Polish ambassador to Ireland and the Belgian ambassador to, to Ireland and many of the Irish College of Europe community and indeed current students in beautiful Bruges. So it's fantastic to, to see you again uh, today. Um, Federica, I might start and, and you know, let, let's just uh, discuss perhaps, it has been a, a difficult year and a half for, for many people uh, with, the, with the COVID pandemic. And I'm sure that is equally true for you, for the College of Europe community uh, in Bruges. Can you tell us a little bit um, how it has been and what is it looking like now as hopefully uh, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel? Absolutely. Uh, it has been a very difficult year. Uh, I would say difficult year and a half, as you said. Uh, I experienced this in the last year uh, as a rector and uh, uh, in the second semester of 2020, I experienced this uh, uh, as a professor because I was teaching a course here in, in Bruges. And so I experienced myself uh, moving from in-person teaching to online teaching in March 2020. And indeed, it has been difficult because uh, for a community like uh, the College of Europe one that uh, has uh, uh, such an investment in building personal networks and social relationships uh, as a major part of our experience, l'esprit du collège, the spirit of Bruges, uh, is about exchanging and getting friends and, and, form, um, and future colleagues and, and uh, uh, connections for your professional careers and even for your life. 
um, living long months of lockdown, uh, turning a lot of activities online has been heavy. We've always kept uh, during the course of this uh, last two academic years, uh, all students in campus. Uh, so our students were always all present uh, here. Uh, even when uh, academic activities were um, compulsorily done online. But at least this has always allowed us to keep that social uh, connection uh, alive. And I, I was very excited. I was very happy to hear uh, the students of last academic year of uh, the Mario Suarez promotion in June, uh, after a very difficult year, uh, telling me that still it was the best year of their life regardless of everything. And many of them told me, uh, Rector, you were right. This was the best place to be even in a COVID year because uh, living a COVID year elsewhere would have been definitely much worse. This year, it looks completely different. Um, I hope things will continue to be like this, but this year we have all our students uh, on campus. Um, we do not have at the moment any positive case. We have uh, around 97, 98% of students vaccinated fully. We are organizing uh, vaccination days for them with the city of Bruges. Uh, we had already two of them for the remaining little numbers that we have. Um, and life is, uh, I would say, almost totally normal here. Obviously we know that COVID is still here. We know that we have to pay attention. Uh, we wear masks in the classrooms and uh, uh, we keep distances whenever possible and we keep the ventilation uh, with the windows open. Um, luckily, the weather is still beautiful in Bruges. Uh, let's see for how long. But uh, life is back to normal in the sense that all classes are uh, in presence uh, in Code Green. So all students attend classes in presence. All professors are in presence. Uh, I was teaching a class myself this morning uh, with 90 students in the room. And that's very good to, to, to be back to, to this personal contact. Obviously, we have the masks. We are paying attention to um, the sanitary measures. Uh, but I would say that uh, the beginning of this academic year is definitely very different from, from previous ones. And again, priority for me personally, but for us as the college, is to, uh, to offer the maximum level of participation to students, keeping the maximum level of safety on the sanitary measures. Uh, but it's so good for me to see students uh, together again, uh, to see them eating together, to see them in classrooms, interacting with professors. And uh, uh, indeed, I think that this year it will be different. Just, um, just a normal year with some precautions, with some precautionary measures, but uh, uh, life is back in campus, uh, I would say one, if not 100%, 98%. <laughs> And that's a pretty high percentage. Uh, as you were speaking, Federica, about Bruges, I was having fond memories of my, of my time and my trip there and uh, was thinking, what a beautiful place. If one had to be in a lockdown, uh, Bruges would not be the, 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 the worst place to have been. I have to tell you, uh, Noel, that um, I think that the students that experienced uh, Bruges in lockdown uh, have somehow had a unique experience because there was no tourists uh, shops, restaurants and bars all closed, completely empty streets. Uh, the atmosphere was probably not the more cheerful one, uh, but for sure uh, something that they will keep in their memories forever because uh, nobody sees Bruges this way. Uh, but it was, apart from that, it was, it was difficult, it was hard. But as I said, even in the times of lockdown that I believe will not come back again, 
uh, neither this year or in the future, because I think we have we have probably turned the page of that kind of measures and probably learned some lessons from the past. But even uh, even during the lockdown periods, probably Bruges was the best place to be indeed. Absolutely. No, ab absolutely. And you mentioned, Federica, that you were lecturing and, and I had a slight tinge of envy as, as I listened to you. I was thinking what a, what a fantastic opportunity it would be to, to sit in on and, and listen to have somebody like yourself lecture. What, what area do you teach on for the students? Uh, I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I left uh, the teaching uh, proper because I think the rector has uh, so many uh, responsibilities in managing the college that uh, teaching a course proper would not be um, uh, appropriate, uh, but uh, I, uh, from time to time, offer guest lectures in other professors' courses. And so whenever a professor has a course on uh, European diplomacy or the role of the high representative and vice president of the commission, as it was the case this morning, or sometimes some specific policy issues, it can be European defense, it can be transatlantic relations, uh, I am very happy to jump in and spend one hour or two with the students uh, to share my, my personal experience, my knowledge, transfer a little bit of uh, what I've learned during my years in the institutions. And also, um, I, I like a lot, I enjoy a lot uh, having individual conversations with students. So um, it's what uh, in, in many universities and in the United States, they do it all the time with office hours. Uh, I'm, I'm just available for students to have an half an hour talk with me can be on their thesis, can be on their career perspectives, can be just on their lives or, or the college, or they have maybe curiosity about uh, some parts of my previous jobs, and I'm happy to exchange with them. Last year, it was constantly, almost constantly online. This year, I have to say, it's great for me also to cross the students at the canteen, to see them in the corridors, to have a chat at the coffee machine. I mean, this is also, this is actually the reason why I'm here, the students. So, it's great also for me to exchange with them uh, also in the corridors and not only in the classrooms. Fantastic. And actually, and, Federica, t tell me, how many students are in each promotion? Just, just roughly how many are we uh, talking we about? We have, uh, in Bruges, we have uh, approximately, and this year, uh, 350, 343, I think, for, for to, to be precise. And then we have some uh, uh, 130 in Natalin, in Warsaw. Uh, so a total of uh, this year, a total of 470, roughly, okay, okay. Uh, which is a, a very small portion of uh, all, the, all the students that apply. This year we had uh, uh, record numbers of applications uh, and record number of students as well and record number of uh, nationalities because we are over 50 nationalities of students. So it's not only Europeans, uh, it's uh, from all over the world, which is also an additional part of the experience because you don't not only learn from your classes and your courses, you also learn from each other. And I think this is really uh, an amazing experience. I, I, I only regret I didn't do it myself, I have to admit. <laughs> I know it's 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 certainly uh, it, it's certainly all the feedback we get and obviously as you know Federica um, we in European Movement Ireland manage and administer the uh, selection process to the College of Europe uh, for Ireland and we're just really delighted to see the increase year on year I think it's fair to say of of Irish students and applications applying to to study in the college and of those 50 nationalities you you mentioned there uh we know that uh the the Irish cohorts certainly uh punch punch above their weight and I suppose from from our perspective and I think in fairness to 
uh, the Minister for European Affairs here in Ireland, the Department of Foreign Affairs, our Department of Further and Higher Education, uh, the, the, the Minister for Further and Higher Education, the Irish government has really pushed uh, in terms of its EU job strategy, the importance of ensuring an Irish pipeline uh, in the EU institutions. And, and through that, um, students from Ireland attending the College of Europe, from your experience in wearing your previous hats, but now as, as rector, you know, how important do you think it is to see that representation continue? And, and I guess from an Irish perspective, if I may be a bit specific, post-Brexit, we're a small island nation on the very geographical periphery uh, of Europe, but we like to think of ourselves very much at the heart. What, what, what do you see as the value add that Ireland contributes to, 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 to the college? Well, first of all, I'm very proud and very happy of the numbers uh, of, of the Irish applications, but also of the Irish selected students. Uh, we have uh, 15 of them this year, uh, which uh, uh, makes of the Irish uh, uh, national group uh, B8, if I'm not wrong, uh, which if you compare with the size of the country in terms of population, uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and this tells a lot, I think, of uh, uh, the enthusiasm and the uh, the interest, uh, but not only the interest, the enthusiasm that uh, is there uh, in, in the Irish youth uh, on, on the European integration process, because uh, let me say very clearly, the college is not only a place to study, the college uh, has a specific mission in its statutes, uh, and that is to contribute to the integration of the European continent. And uh, uh, the college started even before the European institution started, uh, exactly to contribute to forming um, the, 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 the backbone uh, of what would become, what would have become uh, the European Union uh, institutions. And I, I see uh, an enthusiastic uh, Irish uh, student group uh, every year. And, and this year, I'm, I'm sure they will, uh, uh, they will uh, represent your country in a wonderful manner. Personally, I'm very excited to have them here uh, in, in good numbers and good representation. Uh, because, well, first of all, because I love your country, I think you're, you're, you're great as a, as, as a people, as a country, you have a great foreign policy and uh, a lot of uh, attachment to the European process and, uh, and integration. And I think that, as you said, in post-Brexit times, um, it, it is even more so. Uh, it is interesting, though, that uh, we also have good numbers of UK students, uh, which is interesting. Um, and uh, tells a lot, I think, about the trends in public opinions, especially in the younger generations. Uh, but if we go back to Ireland, uh, I think uh, the added value here is, well, first of all, uh, is the added value of having um, students uh, from Ireland that uh, given your tradition of, uh, uh, first of all, um, uh, a multilateral foreign policy, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more, uh, and dedicated to the European integration so much uh, brings uh, a lot of inputs in the um, academic dynamics themselves uh, on especially, um, yes, the proper European studies, but also uh, international relations and diplomacy studies, uh, but also uh, in, in giving somehow uh, an insight on what it means uh, to leave the post-Brexit times uh, in Ireland and from Ireland uh, with a European Union perspective, uh, which is, I think, a very important thing for our students, because I think for our students, it's very important to study Europe, but also to live Europe. 
And this element of exchanging with uh, other students that live in different parts of the, of the continent and different parts of the European Union and get the insight on how they see the post-Brexit uh, UK-EU relations uh, is, uh, uh, is of immense value for our students themselves. I have to admit, it might be of a value also for some of our professors, by the way. Um, some of our professors cannot travel to Bruges because they're based in the UK, for instance, and with the COVID regulations, that is more complicated. But this is something, uh, something that has nothing to, do, nothing to do with Brexit, let's put it <laughs> Great. I'm very and, excited to see the numbers from Ireland growing. I hope I will, we will have more and more students from Ireland. Uh, they're always very good. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, again, the more I, the more we'll get, the, the happier I will be. <laughs> Fantastic. We might use that, Federica, as the tagline to 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 the podcast. Um, just you mentioned there, just interestingly, I suppose from our perspective, given our close. Uh, close historical and and every uh, many other links with with the UK. You mentioned, you know, the increase in number of um, students from the UK studying. How 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 does that work in terms of the student body and and engaging? Do you is is it a challenge? How, did you see Brexit from your position and your previous roles? How do you view Brexit uh, in in that regard? And in terms of, I suppose. Uh, studying it and, and and it was such a fundamental uh, challenge to the very foundation uh, of the EU. How do you see that in, in wearing your rector hat? Well, uh, in my rector hat, uh, it is extremely interesting to see how the UK students interact here. Uh, most of them are passionate about the European Union. Uh, many of them are Scottish. Uh, but many of them are also uh, officials uh, of the UK government, uh, studying the functioning of the European institutions uh, to work better with them or in relation with them, which is also part of uh, uh, why it is important to have the College of Europe open also to non-EU member states, uh, to, to students coming from other parts of the world. I do not see tensions. I do not see problems. I'm actually happy to have UK students uh, coming in good numbers, uh, because I think that's, uh, well, needless to say to you, but no matter what kind of relationship we'll manage to build uh, between the European Union and the UK, uh, you don't change geography and you don't change history. Uh, so um, countries don't disappear from the map and, uh, you know, you have to do, the French would say, il faut faire avec, you have to do what, what you have. And uh, the more we, uh, we continue to know each other, the more we continue to understand each other, the more we continue to come together, the better it is. Um, that is my personal conviction. Having worked on foreign and security policies uh, of the European Union, I've always been convinced that uh, the partnership, the cooperation with the United Kingdom on foreign and security policy will continue and will continue to be as relevant as before. Uh, including in the UN framework, uh, we might come to that uh, later. Uh, and I think that's the more contact we manage to keep and, and develop, the better it will be, especially with the younger generations uh, that will have to somehow also deal with the consequences of Brexit for a mid long term perspective uh, and also imagine maybe future avenues for, you know, let, let's not put any limits to the to, to possibilities of you know, decades and, and centuries to come. 
So investing in, in how the younger generations manage to get in touch with each other, know each other, and work together, uh, I think is extremely important, especially in these years where perceptions can be tough and hard and difficulties are real, um, consequences are real. And I think that investing in this, uh, this building up a, a generation of Europeans inside and outside the European Union that has clear in mind what is the value, what are the reasons, what are the historical roots and the perspectives of the European integration process is vital. And my last Brexit question for you, uh, Federica, if I may, on that, very interesting. If I could ask you, A, were you surprised by the result of the referendum? And B, do you think the UK will eventually rejoin the EU? Um, I was not particularly surprised because being Italian, I'm used to uh, results that are normally the opposite of what everybody expects. But, but uh, I have to say, I remember very vividly, very, very well uh, that June 2016, the European Council immediately following the, the Brexit referendum, also because it was the European Council where I was presenting the global strategy and it was a little bit weird. Uh, but I also very clearly remember that uh, many were saying uh, in the immediately following months uh, and, and even days and weeks, many were saying this is the beginning of the end for the European Union. Many others will follow and uh, there will be a sequence of referenda now. And uh, this is only the first member state uh, that will leave and then the European Union will simply dissolve and, and not exist anymore in a few years. And here we are, 27 managed to stick together and negotiate with one position, a difficult negotiation, unprecedented, very complicated, uh, managed to keep unity, managed to negotiate together, managed to relaunch the European project. And now we are not in a situation where the European Union is not existing, but actually we are even discussing the future of Europe uh, with somehow new energy and new hope. And the European Union managed to face the COVID situation, the COVID crisis, even expanding uh, its policies, uh, its instruments, its tools, um, doing things that were unpredictable before, unconceivable, I would say, before, uh, uh, on the financial aspect, for instance, uh, but also in terms of uh, uh, health um, uh, policies. So I think that the European Union, at the end of the day, not only managed to survive Brexit, but also managed to use it to understand what we risk to lose. Uh, there's, uh, there's a great uh, song uh, I like a lot from The Passenger that say, uh, says, uh, uh, you only miss the sun when it starts to snow. And I think that's exactly what other Europeans felt in the moment of the Brexit referendum. And I think that many realized that one thing is to criticize the European Union and another thing is to get out. You can criticize it, you can contribute to make it better. You can even attack it. But um, I think it's clear to everybody in the 27 and probably also in the UK, uh, many, uh, if not the majority, that uh, it's in any case more convenient for everybody to stay in the same family under the same roof, especially in times of crisis. If the UK will ever come back again, that's not for me to predict. I would say never say never. 
absolutely. We we have a we have an Irish perhaps equivalent to the Italian expression of uh, a referendum is a means of getting an answer to a question that wasn't asked. <laughs> so that's uh, sometimes what what we Extremely use. Extremely appropriate. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you for that, Federica. And just if I may, uh, before handing over to Stephen, uh, you talked about meeting with students and your own career journey and the the uh, fantastic um uh the fantastic positions of leadership that you've held in a variety of of organizations of institutions uh in italy what are what would you see as some of the key learnings and takeaways that you feel you would impart to to the next generation that's coming coming up uh, behind you to students or to potential applicants you know what's your top three tips not only for applying uh, for the College of Europe but also in terms of life and career goals what uh, what what would you feel you'd like to impart or share I would say first or three uh, I'll try uh, first do what you like I think that if you do what you like being it in terms of studying, in terms of jobs, in terms of, you know, dedicate your time and your energy uh, and, and potentially choose your professional uh, path, uh, following your, your enthusiasm, your interests, uh, what you're really passionate about, because this brings you to a different level. You can be a perfect lawyer, but if you don't like uh, law studies, you'll probably be a less perfect lawyer than the one that really loves his job. So my advice would be uh, follow your heart and do what you really like doing and, and, and follow your passion, cultivate your passions. The second one would be to be stubborn, uh, to be yourself, not to follow necessarily the advices uh, of, you know, um, homologate to others, uh, use the same words that others use, you know, here at the college, I always tell students, and I was addressing them uh, the other week when they arrived, uh, I, I told them, you know, here you will, you will uh, understand and you will study and you will uh, learn how it works. And you will have to study hard to do it. Uh, you will know how the system works. But don't think that you're here only for a transfer of knowledge. You're here to be empowered, to know the system in order to bring or try to bring what you think change could be good into the system, but keep that sparkle of, of you know, originality that is in you, because otherwise you lose value. You become one like 3,000, 300,000, 3 million, 3 billions, and, and then what? So it's not only about knowing and studying and getting knowledge of how it works, but it's also developing the skills, the empowerment, that will allow you to potentially bring change into a system, uh, which is something you cannot do if you do not know how it works. And my third advice would be to uh, study hard, not only at the college, the college definitely it's a must, you know it well. Uh, come, at the beginning, it looks like, you know, you just have fun, make friends uh, and, and it's all great. But you start eight o'clock in the morning, you finish 8 p.m. in the evening, and then the thesis starts to come and the papers and the exams study hard, not only at the college, but also in whatever you do. Um, I, I keep here in my office in Bruges uh, something I, I received uh, uh, in October 2014 from the offices uh, of the External Action Service and uh, the European Commission 
for preparing my hearing in the European Parliament. And I will always remember that a hearing in the European Parliament was three hours of grilling, uh, one minute question, one minute answer, uh, answer uh, one by one, no time to escape or think or, you know, uh, play the politics of, uh, of answering something else. Live web streamed, uh, so really um, uh, a test. And for preparing for that, and I was a minister of a G8 country and, and, and uh, holding the presidency of the European Union at the time. Um, but for preparing for that hearing, uh, I uh, remember I received a package of briefings that was approximately, I think, around 10,000 pages. Um, and uh, I decided to lock myself in. It was a lockdown before the lockdown. And, and study carefully uh, all the briefings uh, for four consecutive days without getting out of my room uh, in Brussels. And, uh, you know, to, even afterwards, I continue doing this. You need to study the files. You need to be on top of your briefings um, because this gives you the knowledge that allows you to do, to take the right decisions if you need to take decisions, hopefully, uh, judgment is also not only based on knowledge, but uh, but it's important to know what you're talking about and what you're deciding about. It also gives you an extra an extra um, tool uh, when you negotiate with others, when you meet others. So my advice would my three advices would be this: do what you're passionate about, uh, be yourself, and not don't give it up. Don't pretend to be someone you're not and study hard and continue to study uh, in whatever position you are, even if you are, you know, Secretary General of the United Nations, the President of the United States, um, whatever. Be someone that uh, prepares for meetings, prepares for things you have to deal with, study your files, uh, because knowledge has meaning in itself and will allow you to, um, to, to master situations, even difficult ones in a better way. But then if I can add a personal one, a fourth extra personal one. Um, find time for your private life, whatever you do in life, whatever you do in life. Uh, I, I hope, I think I can share an anecdote, uh, a personal anecdote. The first time, very first time I met Ursula von der Leyen, she was defense minister of Germany and I was just starting as a high representative and I was in bilateral visit in Berlin. And um, so I was in the Defense Ministry, she welcomed me and we had a five minutes, 10 minutes private talk before we started the meetings. And she told me, Federica, I would, if you allow me, I would give you one personal advice only, always find at least 24 hours in the week to dedicate to the ones you love, being it your kids, your family, your cats, your friends, you know, your mom, whatever, but find 24 hours a week because otherwise, responsibilities and your passion for your job absorbs everything and then you lose contact with reality and I will always kept this in mind and uh, I think it was one of the best advices I, I got uh, because I think that keeping that human touch keeping that you know you can love your job but still your job is not completely coinciding with your life and I think this is important to keep that you are still a human being, no matter what kind of responsibilities you have, you have to keep the personal human dimension uh, still present always in your life. Because this helps you also doing well your job. It's not only for the quality of your life, it's also for the quality of your work. And if I may, Federica, such wise words from two uh, 
powerful and inspiring women, I think, uh, certainly lessons and a mantra there for us all to, to live by. And if I may, you're the first female rector, uh, I think, at the College of Europe. You yes. are a trailblazer in so many ways. And, you know, as a, as a female leader, how do you see your, your legacy? And also, how do you see the challenges geopolitically? Do you feel there's enough female representation in wider security, defense, foreign affairs policy, women in leadership? No, <laughs> the straightforward answer is no. No, we have a long way to go. Uh, I think we have a long way to go in uh, institutions, in academia, uh, in business, in media, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the good news is that we have, uh, I believe we have more and more women taking responsibilities. Uh, we have the first woman uh, president of the European Commission. Uh, there was a moment when we had uh, uh, almost more women than men as defense ministers in the European Union, but still, uh, still we have a long way to go, especially in some sectors, not only defense and, and foreign policy, think of uh, economy and finance, um, still the banking system. It's good to have Christine Lagarde there, but we still have a long way to go in many sectors. And for me, it was indeed an added value personally to imagine, to think that uh, I would have become the first woman uh, rector of the College of Europe, uh, because I know that, uh, well, we have a lot of, we have many women uh, leading uh, departments uh, of studies here. Actually, we have a majority of professors that are leading, that are director of studies here at the college uh, rather than men. We only have uh, one man out of five, actually, uh, but uh, uh, but we still have a lot uh, to to do in terms of uh, increasing the number of women among professors, students-wise, it's balanced. But this is, for instance, why I decided this year to introduce a new figure uh, in the college. Um, we have uh, starting uh, last week uh, an advisor on uh, diversity and inclusion at the college because I think we need to increase the level of uh, representativeness of our. Uh, not only student body, but also staff and academic body, uh, not only in terms of gender, but also in terms of uh, background, uh, ethnicity. Um, and uh, I think there is a lot to do in this respect, because the closer the institutions, including academic institutions, are to the composition of society, uh, the, the bigger is the chance that they serve well societies that they serve. So uh, this is this is uh, an attention that I think needs to be paid uh, to, to all the functioning bodies of our institutions and our societies, and I I really would like to work a lot in this respect uh, at the college uh, to to make it uh, uh, more diverse, more inclusive, and to make sure that everybody here, students, academics, staff, feels uh, comfortable and at home. Uh, and uh, feels part of um, uh, of a welcoming body. Absolutely. And my last question for you, Federica, before handing over to 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 Stephen, very briefly, if I may, as you know, uh, the conference on the future of Europe is taking place. We in European Movement Ireland are very involved in supporting. Uh, the rollout and the engagement of that from an Irish perspective. I have the honour to be uh, appointed the National Citizen Representative for Ireland. If I might ask you very briefly, what do you, would you like to see as the outcome of that conference? Uh, this is a question I 
I don't have the answer to. Uh, I've been asking this myself for quite many months now. What I like of this process is that it's open-ended. At the beginning, I think there were some anxieties about this, the fact that it was not shaped, somehow it was not structured, and this could have become uh, vague or, or uh, yes, not defined. I think that actually today, this is an opportunity. I think that nobody can say today what the outcome would be. And I think this is a plus. I think this is a real, this is a novelty. Normally, you more or less know where it's landing. In this case, I think it's really good that this is not the case. I could not predict, I could not wish. Uh, I don't have, I have not reflected so far what I would ask the Conference on the Future of Europe myself, personally. Uh, but I think that after the COVID crisis and after, um, after the reaction of the institutions, and especially uh, with, uh, with, the, um, with the recovery fund, uh, and the decision to use for the first time ever instruments that were never used before uh, of the EU budget somehow, uh, I think, uh, or rather the possibility to use the European Union to, to have uh, to borrow money um, as the European Union uh, with, with very beneficial um, conditions uh, in the interest of all member states and citizens in Europe. I think that having had that taboo broken last year, uh, with all the conditions that are around it. Uh, but I think that this opens the way for a conference on the future of Europe that can really address any issue without any limits. I think the good thing of this exercise is this, there's no taboo on the table anymore. Uh, and this is refreshing. And this is uh, bringing me hope. Federica, it's uh, Stephen O'Shea here. You're, you're very welcome. And I just want to pivot to your former role as High Representative and, and Vice President of the Commission for a moment. And I, I think it's fair to say that your term was characterised by efforts, almost unprecedented efforts, I think, to put EU foreign and defence policy on a more strategic footing, particularly with the global strategy, which you mentioned. And you described it as the basic idea, I think, of as moving from vision to action. Um, so I just wonder, considering the current global context that we find ourselves in, what your assessment is from this vantage point of where the EU is making progress and where uh, more needs to be done? I think, well, first of all, yes, uh, it has been a collective effort and uh, um, still at 28. I finished my mandate still at 28 and with unanimity without major problems, let me say this, including on defense. So, uh, I mean, talking to you in Ireland, uh, you, you get all the implications of this, both from the Irish and the UK perspective. Uh, and, and I have to say, for me, this was a very encouraging exercise because I've seen that when, uh, when discussions and decisions are aimed at uh, finding a common, common goal and a common action, um, then, then it works. We always point out at the divisions or the difficulties within the European Union, and, and we sometimes forget to highlight the success stories. And I, I believe this was one. Um, it was turning more strategic. It was turning to uh, implementing things that were never implemented before of the Lisbon Treaty, like the defense uh, pillar of the European Union. Um, then success, I think, is uh, there still now. Uh, and even increased when it comes, for instance, to the external role of the European Union vis-a-vis, -vis, for instance, the consular activities. If you take COVID, uh, well, you know, consular activities are for member states. Uh, the 
treaties don't give any kind of almost any kind of responsibility to the European institutions here. Uh, and, and, and yet, um, when COVID came, uh, the European Union played a major role in repatriating EU citizens uh, from all over the world to Europe uh, because of the presence of EU delegations around the world uh, and because of the economy of scale, I would say. Difficult to repatriate maybe two Irish uh, citizens from somewhere in the Pacific, but maybe if you put all the Europeans together, it becomes logistically more sustainable. So I think the European Union is in a good place when it comes to um, to expanding potentially all those aspects of its external action that are evidently and clearly serving the national diplomacies in a way that national diplomacies could not do alone. Um, I always say uh, in Europe, we don't have big and small member states. We only have member states that have not yet realized they are small. Uh, and, and I think this is reality of the global landscape today. So. Uh, the, the unity of the European Union makes it so that uh, the, the impact of our action globally is, is, is bigger. So I think we are in a good place in realizing this. Uh, if I have to point at things that could be now revitalized better, let's put it this way, uh, and I think we are doing this, I think the institutions are now working on this, um, is to relaunch a little bit the defense work. Um, I think uh, what happened in Afghanistan over summer uh, was clearly a wake-up call uh, to reopen the book, let's put it this way, of the European defense and reinvest in, in relaunching it properly. Uh, as you said, uh, during my mandate, this was one of the main fields of action. Uh, I, if I have to mention two or three success stories of my mandates overall, I would definitely say defense. Uh, maybe as the first one, together with the Iran nuclear deal. Um, but it's true that with COVID, uh, priorities changed, and understandably so. I think that it was the right choice to probably move and shift the attention a little bit more to other fields and other uh, competences. But I think we should be aware of the fact that um, the European Union needs a strong element of uh, uh, strategic, not only thinking, but acting uh, in the world, not for charity or not for, you know, projection of power, but for self-interest. Uh, we are so much connected uh, that we cannot really think of uh, uh, a Europe that protects its citizens in isolation vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. So, if we do not project our policies in an effective manner, including conflict prevention and peace building, which is the core elements of not only the Irish policy, but also the European policy, uh, then you cannot really expect to live in peace and security at home. That is the point. So it's self-interest, it's not charity. Uh, investing in development, cooperation, investing in, in, uh, in uh, conflict prevention and, and, peace, uh, and peace building. So, I think that there, the work on defense, knowing that there are some elements of uh, potential um, uh, controversies, uh, including with some member states that, have, uh, that are not NATO members and have uh, clear constitutional uh, uh, frameworks uh, to refer to, um, but this has never created uh, problems, I think, at least in the past, and I hope it will never create problems in the future. Uh, I think it is needed to have a, a a strong, uh, strong credibility and a strong also autonomy of the European Union when it comes to security and defense. 
which doesn't mean that you don't work with NATO anymore, but it means, you know, I always called it not strategic autonomy, but cooperative autonomy. We always go together, but you go together knowing that if really needed, uh, you, you know where your compass is, you, you know where your priorities are, you know where you stand. Uh, and, and related to that, then, and, and you, you, you mentioned it um, in, throughout your, your answer, Federica, is the, so there, I suppose, developments in this space for the EU to be, to have the capability and the effectiveness that is required or is discussed in some quarters will require difficult choices and difficult conversations in some member states. I mean, do you think there is a potential for further developments, for example, to impact on Irish neutrality, or, you know, just to, to broaden it out a little bit. I mean, some of the Eastern countries um, have, have concerns about developments vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with NATO, which also causes difficulties from them. So I suppose my, my question is, how, how do you bring the 28 with you in a way that is that is effective, or actually do you go a different way which is to you know form groups of states to act on particular areas um how do you do you square the circle of, of trying to get consensus well um i have to admit during my mandate i never had uh, problems of consensus on defense at 28 uh probably because the uk had already decided to leave so they were not opposing decisions that would have not affected them in the future. That's my reading. But uh, in any case, we took decisions on defense by unanimity at 28. Uh, and this means that uh, somehow, sometimes you, you think something is impossible until you test it. And then you might find out that it's not so impossible. Sometimes you have some pre-formed uh, 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 self-restraints that then you, you find out they were in... in uh, in the public discourse, they were in the politics, they were in, in the minds and in the speeches, but maybe they were not in the reality of actions. Um, I think, you know, the question, you go at 27 now, or are you go in smaller groups? I think you can do both. Uh, we have PESCO in place already. We have the permanent structural cooperation on defense in place already. Um, that could definitely be revitalized and, and be probably more focused on, on individual projects, maybe less and, and more and more to the point. Um, but you can also move together on some strategic big choices. Uh, on NATO, let me say very clearly this, because this has been an argument I've, um, I've uh, faced and, and I've um, uh, worked on for uh, many years, uh, not only during my mandate in Brussels, but also before. Uh, I was in the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, I was in the Defence Committee in the Italian Parliament. Um, I've, I've probably worked more with NATO than with the European Union before coming to Brussels. For me, Brussels was NATO more than the European Union, actually, in my previous job, previous, previous, previous life. Um, I, I, I think, uh, and, and I've experienced that, the stronger the capacity of the European Union is to work on uh, its own defence is, the easiest it is to build real cooperation with them on real projects. Um, there are plenty of examples on that. There are complicated issues, um, not the one of membership, in my opinion. I don't see a problematic element of membership uh, and allies and members of the European Union because we share the same 
reading of reality uh, and, and, and geopolitics. Um, I don't see this as a problematic element. There are elements that might become problematic when it comes to, uh, to, to industrial choices, uh, but that has little to do with strategic choices or policy uh, decisions. This has more to do with, uh, yes, uh, investments and business and, and industrial uh, choices. Fair enough, but legitimate, but also legitimate uh, to invest on European projects if you have European money to invest in them. Uh, but I, I don't see I don't see how the European defense could be an impediment for it. In reality, I have never seen it as a as a problem. And for me, the demonstration of this was that it was exactly in the moment when we started the work on the European defense, the same moment when we had the strongest ever in history partnership between the European Union and NATO. The two went together hand in hand which means that one is not contradicting the other. That's out of my experience. The rest, the rest might be economic interests or ideological uh, powers. Sorry, I'm, I'm maybe a bit more, a bit too direct. No, no, but, no, no. Uh, I, I, was, I was so when I was uh, having diplomatic uh, uh, responsibilities, so imagine how I can be now. Well, just, and I'll leave it at this because I'm conscious of your time, but just in that spirit of, um, of directness, which I also think, um, by the way, characterized your, your term, I want to come back to the idea of the strategic idea of foreign policy and this principle of pragmatism, which is, I think, what you used to refer to it as. And, you know, small states like Ireland have to be strategic. We have to make choices because we don't have the capacity to do everything, as you'll be well aware. And I wonder, and I think you did, I mean, you did allude to it in the last answer. I mean, I, I wonder, should the EU be more upfront about its need to make choices, to be strategic, to focus its finite resources? And my question is, is it realistic, in your opinion, for the EU to be a global player on every issue? Or should it just pick and choose its issues where it can actually makes a make a difference? Because it seems currently that in a lot of the talk around strategic autonomy, etc., it's all very broad and it seeks to, you know, it captures a lot of areas and it seeks to be at the forefront of every issue. And, you know, maybe that's not possible. Uh, that's a very good question. And I'm not sure I have the right answer. I have my own answer uh, to this. Uh, and that was a question I, I asked myself and, and I asked my team when I started a lot. Uh, do we narrow it down and we pick uh, priorities and choose uh, some issues or do we try to, um, to cover uh, a broad spectrum of issues? Uh, I would rather, actually, I would rather argue for the second one uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, there is, you know, there are issues that are urgent and that you cannot skip. Uh, so that is a given. Uh, you cannot ignore uh, some crises or some situations or some conflicts that are there and, you know, it's just urgent to tackle them. Then there are things that are important, important for you, regardless of the urgency of the headlines. Uh, and it can be human rights, it can be gender, it can be uh, development cooperation, it can be mediation, uh, or it can be partnerships 
on which you want to invest, even if they're not problematic. Uh, Latin America, uh, Africa, um, the easy partners that you risk losing because you give them for granted and then you don't pay attention or resources to them and then they become problems potentially. Uh, so would you give that up? I would definitely not. I think investing in friendships, and I'm sure this is something that uh, connects the Italian and the Irish foreign policy a lot, investing in friendships in the, in the positive partnerships and not only on problem solving is, is, is an asset, especially if your country is not of big, big, big size, uh, because you need friends around the world to, to, to be able to do things. Uh, and sometimes it multiplies the effect of your actions because maybe you're you're small, but you can you can use a network of friends around the world and multilateralism to actually advance your agenda. So you need to invest in in friendships and partnerships, even if this is not urgent, because this is important. And then you might have some new fields that you want to open up, and that might be not traditional. Uh, I'm afraid uh, when when you mentioned. Uh, at the moment, it seems very broad. I'm afraid I even added some issues to the, to the agenda. Uh, cultural diplomacy, uh, for me, was a missing piece of the puzzle. Uh, and it's an essential one for Europeans, because that's our soft power, and that's our, you know, an irreplaceable tool and asset nobody else has. Um, many other, or, for instance, there's a big, big, big work I think would need to be done on uh, uh, the global tech environment. Who regulates artificial intelligence? And this is global. Uh, are we going to leave it to, to whom? <laughs> the United Nations, I love the United Nations system, but probably that's not the best place to do it. Uh, also because of the data system in the security council, but here I enter minefield. Um, or, or, you know, uh, space. Uh, there are issues on which uh, you, you might not be pushed to be uh, active, but you might see the need or the opportunity to position yourself or to start working before it becomes an issue that it's urgent in 10 years. So I, I guess that we cannot afford ignoring any of the topics that are there. And actually there might even be some others to add, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, but then the good news is that um, it's true, you have to make resources available uh, and you have to square the circle of budgets, it's not irrelevant. But it's also true that some things in foreign policy don't cost money. Some things you can do through international organizations, through partnerships and alliances. Some things you can do uh, politically. I mean, recognition of partners, uh, recognition of topics or interlocutors, empowerment. Uh, for instance, empowerment of youth or women is something that costs really little money and, and pays off uh, in, in a way that actually prevents you to spend money on the problems that are prevented in, in that investment. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I was a bit confusing in the way in which I expressed it, but I hope I hope you get the message. Sometimes no. you spend a little bit on something that doesn't look a priority and that saves you money uh, on dealing with something that otherwise would have happened after maybe two years or seven years. Think of prevention of radicalization. No, absolutely, absolutely, and we could, uh, we could, we could. I could stay talking all day about this stuff. It's, and I'm sure, actually, the strategic, the upcoming strategic compass will 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 put some some structure on this in terms of uh, 
assessment of the EU's interests, etc., um, which is is coming up in the months ahead. But um, could stay talking forever. But uh, for now, I'll hand you back to Noel. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen, and thank you very much, Federica. Unfortunately, time and the clock has run run out and run against us uh, now. But I'm really appreciative of you giving so generously of your time. It was fascinating, fascinating conversation with you. We could have uh, kept talking and I've no doubt we will we'd perhaps have to do a round two, Federica, your diary permitting at, at some later date again in the future. Absolutely, we love it. Thank you. And hopefully we'll get to uh, perhaps see you in person, invite you in person to Ireland. We'd love to, to welcome you here uh, to Dublin. And equally, I think we'd love to uh, perhaps visit Bruges at some stage in the not too distant future. And if I may, on behalf of all of us, a big thank you to you for your time. Um, we look forward to working with you and your team in the college and hopefully we'll see even more Irish students attend the College of Europe in both Bruges and Natalin in uh, uh, this year. I think we're at a really exciting time of uh, Irish engagement and participation in Natalin and Bruges and we look forward here in European Movement Ireland to playing our part in that. Thank you, our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to listen back to all of our EM Ireland podcasts and webinars to date on the EM Ireland player or follow us across social media. In the meantime, until we meet again, please do stay safe. Slán Thank you. Bye-bye.